0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. At least nine Arab states fall below the World Health Organization's benchmark of 45 doctors, nurses, and midwives per 10,000 people. We examine the exodus of trained medical professionals from the Middle East just when they're needed most. And the rabbi Jonathan Sachs was officially leader only of a small Orthodox minority. But in practice, Gentiles viewed him as the spokesman for all of Britain's Jews. We look back on the life of a man whose efforts to unify faiths stretched far beyond Judaism. But first... America has been notably absent from the global climate discussion in recent years. But with the election of Joe Biden, things seem set to change. America's president-elect has pledged to rejoin the Paris Agreement on day one of his tenure.
1: I will rejoin the Paris Accord. I
2: will join the Paris Accord because with us out of it, look what's happening.
0: Yesterday, he appointed former Secretary of State John Kerry as his climate envoy. Mr. Biden has laid out a plan to spend nearly $2 trillion on green-minded policies. Of course, it's not only government cash that can play a role in decarbonizing economies. Venture capitalists are pouring in too, spurred on by success stories such as Tesla's. At the electric carmaker's socially distanced annual shareholder meeting last month, its boss Elon Musk underlined the role of technology.
3: In order to sort of do well financially, you really need economies of scale and you need ideally the best technology. And I think we, we had the best technology for a while, but now we are also achieving economies of scale.
0: But green tech bets have been a mixed bag for investors in the past. Slipping timelines and underwhelming performance fed a cycle of boom and bust in the early 2000s. These days though, things seem to be on a surer footing.
2: Green veg capital is going through somewhat of a revival. In the past kind of four years or so, the amount of investment into the space has almost doubled. Guy Scriven is The
0: Economist's climate risk correspondent.
2: And you're seeing a lot more green entrepreneurs and green startups emerging and trying to make their businesses work and trying to help contribute to slowing climate change. So what's changed then? In the past few years, a couple of things have changed, which makes the green venture capital market more exciting and look like a kind of better investment opportunity again. One thing is that the kind of demand has seen an uptick. So consumers are much more interested in green products than they were in the past. The second change is one of the kind of underlying technologies itself. So you've seen the price of solar power uh, drop something like 80% in the past decade, The cost of other types of technologies have dropped too. Those kind of lower costs have helped venture capitalists be able to create kind of firms that offer auxiliary services and goods connected to these technologies.
0: So a lot of that investment now is is going into the energy sector.
2: Some of it is going into the energy sector, but by no means all. About half the, the deals by value go to kind of low carbon transport and that's a sector which has been encouraged by the kind of eye-popping success of Tesla.
3: I think it's been, it's been an incredible year. Um, and I uh, uh, really appreciate uh, everyone who's uh, uh, put their hard-earned money into Tesla. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's worked out pretty well. This, this has been a, a good year. And I think uh, there's many good years to come. Thank you. Thank you.
2: The share price of which has kind of shot through the roof. Another exciting growth area for green venture capital is plant-based proteins and alternative types of protein, spurred on by the success of Impossible Foods, which is backed by Bill Gates and Google. But what kind of numbers are we talking about?
0: How much money is flowing into these sectors?
2: So last year, about $36 billion of investment in kind of climate technology firms flowed into the venture capital sector and that was up from around $17 billion in 2015. This doesn't sound like a lot in comparison to the kind of size of capital markets, but $36 billion is actually a record for the kind of green venture capital market. And the hope is that all this money will spur on innovation and that will lower the price of green technologies, even if we don't have regulations like carbon taxes to do that for us.
0: So now that this is reviving, then, who are the green venture capitalists?
2: There are three broad groups of investors here. There's a core of conventional venture capital firms. Some of them have funds that try to buy climate-related technology. There's another group, which are corporations, including the kind of big oil firms uh, such as Exxon, Mobil, and Shell, have venture capital arms and they buy stakes in exciting new technology. And a third source of investment is investment vehicles of billionaires. And the most prominent example of that is Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is a fund set up by Bill Gates.
1: The so-called Breakthrough Energy Ventures is a fund that I assembled a group of 22 people uh, to put money into uh, companies that are trying to commercialize uh, okay. the, the breakthroughs. Right, but-
2: and that takes money from dozen or so other billionaires. And they invest in all sorts of new and exciting technologies from low carbon cement to carbon capture and storage. And so all of the,
0: the venture capital enthusiasm for this must be based at least a bit on what's already making money in these kinds of spaces.
2: Yes, that's right. So some of the enthusiasm is being driven by the companies which are already listed. So green stocks have done very well over the past few years. They've outperformed the S&P 500. Even within the venture capital industry, returns are looking quite promising. One consultancy reckons that returns work out at about kind of 20%, which is roughly double what you'd expect in the venture capital industry as a whole.
0: What about the role of governments, though? Whenever we're talking about bleeding-edge technologies, governments have a role to play to get these things off the ground.
2: Governments play a very important role here. Almost all of the funding for very early-stage technologies comes from governments in the form of R&D investments. The kind of global figure sits at about $25 billion, and that's been slowly growing over the past few years. Another promising sign is that at least some governments are starting to get a bit more sophisticated in how they spend their money. So there are a couple of examples of programs where governments are trying to help green startups over what they call valleys of death, which are big financing gaps where the amount of money needed is too big for a venture capital firm to pay but the kind of type of risk associated with a project is too risky for something like a kind of private equity or project finance firm to pay for. And so governments are trying to fill these gaps with various schemes.
0: So it seems clear that people expect they will profit from these nascent technologies, but um, I'm wondering if you think the planet itself will profit from all this interest.
2: These kind of companies have a meaningful role to play in decarbonizing the economy. The problem is that in some ways it's much more important to decarbonize really heavy industry like steel mills and cement plants. And for those kind of decarbonization tasks, venture capital often isn't the right model just because they're very expensive and take a long time to generate returns. And so I think the green revival will help with the software side of things. And that will make somewhat of a difference. But we need much more than just kind of green venture capital if we want to decarbonize the economy.
0: Guy, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. For those with money, Lebanon's healthcare system was once the envy of the Middle East. Wealthy patients would fly in for treatment. Today, though, it's the doctors getting on planes.
4: It's mass exodus. I have seen it. It will keep going. I don't see any. You know, if I had hope, I would have stayed. Until this year, Fuad Bulos
0: worked as a doctor in Beirut. Now he's moved, along with his young family, to practice in America.
4: It breaks my heart. The people I worked with were my family, no less than that. Uh, it was the hardest decision that I ever had to make, uh, leaving everything behind. He's part of a
0: wave of Arab world doctors who are taking their skills elsewhere.
1: Many Arab countries have had a shortage of doctors for a number of years, and the pandemic has really underscored how short-staffed their healthcare systems are.
0: Greg Carlstrom is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist and is based in Lebanon.
1: There's not a universal standard for quantifying what is a well-staffed healthcare system, but the World Health Organization suggests a threshold of what they call skilled health personnel, so doctors, nurses, and midwives, 45 of those per 10,000 people. And you have at least nine Arab states, that's about half of the region, that fall below that threshold, some of them quite far below. You have countries like Egypt and Morocco, where They only have 20-something, so they're about half of the WHO-recommended guideline. And why is that? Is it there are not enough doctors actually qualifying? When it comes to doctors, no, it's not a problem of supply. Medicine is seen as a very desirable and prestigious career in the Middle East, as it is in much of the world. And so there's fierce competition for places in university and places in medical school. Take a country like Egypt. They graduate around 7,000 doctors each year. If you adjust for population, Egypt actually produces about 15% more doctors than America does. Nursing is a less desirable career. It's, it's denigrated and frowned upon in some countries. So you have many Arab countries that have had to rely on nurses imported from abroad. That's not a problem unique to the region, but at least when it comes to doctors, no, it's, it's not a problem of, of supply or interest. So where is the problem then? The problem is a lot of Arabs train to become doctors, but once they graduate, they want to leave. If you look at Lebanon, for example, where the country has fallen into a, a grinding economic crisis over the past year, about 3% of the total workforce for doctors have left just in the past year. In Tunisia, the National Council of Doctors estimates that about 40% of its registered members, 40% of Tunisian doctors, are practicing outside the country. In Egypt, that figure is closer to 50%. So... You have this huge supply of Arab doctors, but many of them, the moment they can, they they seek work elsewhere and they want to leave. Why is that? Well, the most obvious answer, as it often is, is money for young doctors who've just spent the better part of a decade training to become doctors. They hope this will be a pathway to a middle class or an upper middle class life. And that's simply not the case in some Arab countries, particularly for doctors who are working in the public sector, in government-run hospitals which account for the bulk of the healthcare system in much of the Arab world. So in Egypt, for example, a, a recently graduated doctor might earn between 2,000 and 2,500 Egyptian pounds a month. That's barely $150. It's also barely half of what the average Egyptian household spends on basic living expenses each month. So it's not even a subsistence wage for a young doctor, let alone someone who is trying to get married and raise a family.
0: Well, those are the doctors who are just starting out.
1: The hope would be, of course, as you get uh, further along in your career, that it becomes more lucrative. But even that, the the pay is not comparable to what it would be in developed countries and other parts of the world. So in Tunis, for example, a specialist with years of experience, someone working in a public hospital, might take home about $15,000 a year. Compared to the median wage in Tunis, that's not a bad salary, it's a livable salary. But that same specialist could go to Dubai or to Kuwait or one of the wealthy Gulf countries and earn fifteen thousand dollars in a month, probably. So the incentive is to leave. Does that not lead to the obvious suggestion of simply paying doctors more to keep them in the countries? And that is part of a bigger problem. Again, particularly in the the public healthcare system and in government-run facilities. And, and the problem is that Arab governments, for decades, have simply not invested enough money in their healthcare system. To go back to Egypt, again, the constitution in Egypt, which was approved in two thousand and fourteen after the military coup committed the state to spending 3% of annual gross domestic product on healthcare 4 years later in 2018 the figure was still less than half that it was about 1.4% so egypt falling well short of the goal that it set for itself on healthcare spending
0: so the picture you paint here is, is of a really entrenched uh, deep societal problem here not one with a, an easy
1: solution it is, and it's a societal problem that goes beyond health care. Egypt, again, the constitution mandates a certain level of education spending, the government missing that target as well. The Egyptian government does have money to spend on building a new capital city, on multi-billion dollar arms deals. There's money available, but it's being spent on the government's priorities. And it's a problem that the leadership in many of these countries are insulated from. Lebanon has a underfunded and overcrowded public health care system, but it has an excellent private health care system with doctors who've trained at top universities, and it attracted medical tourists from across the Arab world. But you needed money to be able to access it. Now, of course, Lebanese politicians, Lebanese business leaders had money and were able to access it. They might feel differently about spending money on public health care if they had to queue up in an overcrowded public hospital the way everyone else does.
0: Thanks very much for your time, Greg.
1: Thank you.
3: Jonathan Sachs was known around his office as the rapid rabbi, which was because every morning that he could manage it, he liked to pull on his tracksuit and go out jogging.
0: Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor.
3: As he ran, he liked to listen to music. Or what he much liked to do was just put on noise-cancelling headphones, so that as he ran, he had nothing to disturb him at all. And he was extremely keen on cancelling out all possible sounds from the world because a lot of the rest of his life and his career was taken up with trying to sort out competing shouting voices. And he felt responsible not only for trying to sort those out, but for endeavouring to make society a more peaceful and sociable and generally benevolent place. He felt this was his mission in life. His official post, which he held from 1991 to 2013, was chief rabbi of Britain's Jews. And he also fulfilled the role of being an ambassador of the Jewish community to the establishment in Britain. He uh, wanted to bring a Jewish point of view into the highest echelons of the land and indeed into the bedrooms and kitchens of ordinary British folk, people who were not at all aware of the Jewish tradition. He did that by having a regular slot on BBC Radio 4's Thought for the Day.
4: For a thousand years, Jews have been targeted as scapegoats because they were a minority and because they were different. But difference is what makes us human.
3: He was Certainly a very popular voice on Radio 4, quite a stern voice in a way that would make it clear that you had to live according to a certain discipline. There was an absolute good, there was an absolute evil, and you felt sure that Jonathan Sachs was very much aware of what these were.
4: All it takes for evil to flourish is for good people to do nothing. Today I see too many good people doing nothing, and I am ashamed.
3: He hadn't actually set out to be a rabbi. He didn't come from a line of rabbis in his family. His father actually sold clothes on Petticoat Lane. His grandfather, however, had run a very tiny synagogue, and when he was growing up, he would go to this synagogue and felt very moved by the sadness of the music there. And he felt, he said, the mystery of God in that place. And as he grew up, although he went to Church of England schools and then went on to Cambridge to study moral philosophy, he became more interested in being Jewish, being more overtly Jewish. What really brought this to a head was the Six-Day War in 1967 of Israel against the Arabs when he suddenly felt a terrific outpouring of emotion and attachment to Israel, and which lasted all his life. He felt he had a duty not only to his charges, to Britain's Jews, but to society at large. And he hoped very much to try to get notions of altruism and larger social cohesion into people's minds. He was always very worried by the individualism of the age and the sense in which every man was out for himself. Forget the public persona of perfection that
4: people post on their social media as their defense against an unforgiving world.
3: He thought it possible that, as every crisis that the Jews had encountered had actually made them stronger, There might be a way that the great crises of this age, such as climate change and now coronavirus, might make people more inclined to act together as one great society in which everyone felt responsible for everyone else and there was a sense of shared norms of behaviour.
4: Live, give and forgive. Do that and we will grow. Do that and we will move.
3: And he appealed to the moral sense in people, not forgetting religion, but in a way also separate from it, a sense of responsibility of each of us for our neighbours, our fellow men and women, feeling that we must care for each other and that is the way through these crises and that they will finally be resolved.
4: God gives us the strength To heal what we have harmed. To mend what we have broken.
3: He was such a towering moral figure, really, in Britain. There were very few like him who were prepared to talk about good and evil and the way we should live our lives and try to find some way through the cacophony of the modern age. The voices of consumerism and individualism. He always believed that there should be a way through it, even if the only sure way that he knew was actually either to bury himself in his studies or to put on those noise-canceling earphones and try to hear not what the world was shouting at him, but what God was telling him to do.
0: Anne Rowe on Jonathan Sachs, who's died aged 72. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com/intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow.